loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming back Dina Taylor. Dina is a humorist, copywriter, and microwaves a mean Amy's burrito. Her writing has been published in Austin Woman Magazine and on Fresh Yarn, and her copywriting has been recognized by Howe Magazine, Print, and Graphic Design USA, among others. She's written and performed with Austin's gag reflex sketch comedy group and was hailed a freak by megawatt entertainer Wayne Brady. Certainly that's got to be a compliment. After generating lifelike wind sound effects as a volunteer in one of his Las Vegas Vegas shows. She lives in Seattle, surrounded by loving friends, gifted creators, and a commotion of fur called Bridget. I Don't Want to Be Pink is her first book. Welcome, Dina. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so happy to get to spend another hour with you. It was so it was so it, you know, it made me think back because you came within a few months of my beginning this show actually. Uh, yeah. And yeah, that was that almost something? 7 years. I can't believe uh, uh you know, it made me think of the timeline of um your journey with this book because it was a manuscript at mm-hmm. that time and uh my journey with this show. So I enjoyed the chance to review. Thank you. It's like the seven-year itch. Seven-year itch. That's where we we had to. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. And uh, I was saying before we went on to you that I just, uh, I enjoyed the book so much that time. And then it, it even deepened in wonderfulness between the first time and this time. And, um, one thing that really stands out, of course, it's about your your breast cancer diagnosis, your treatment, you're coming through that experience. And I just felt as if any woman, since I've done, you know, support groups for women with cancer for years, any woman facing that moment could get so much out of the book. And, um, you know, because it's, it's intimate, but it's also universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, there are things that you that I wish I that would have been told when I was first diagnosed and writing some of those sections about you know what happens when you go in to see a cosmetic surgeon or a tattoo artist or all, like I didn't I didn't have that playbook in the beginning I, I just sort of like told this is your this is what you do now this is what you do now but I didn't know how those things were going to pan out with at each visit so I typically had a friend go with me and take notes because my mind was racing um but kind of and sure surely it's there are some things that are going to be different for different types of diagnoses and uh treatments there's so many treatment options and then there's also advancements and treatment options so um it's always changing hopefully improving uh but it was it was cathartic for me to write, even just to write that out. Even if I had never published this book, um, I needed to sort all that out as I went along and then organize those thoughts because it was taking up a lot of 
uh, space in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, the other thing that stands out in the book as a whole that relates to that in my mind is that there's this sort of, um, I don't know, cheerleader, strong, perseverant, um, cartoon almost of people mm -hmm. facing cancer, um, which almost no one that I've ever encountered is actually really feeling that way inside. Mm -hmm. uh, and I could imagine even you were, were presenting that way, you know, because you were using your humor to deal with a really tough situation. Mm -hmm. But the book sort of uh, allows us into both, both mm -hmm. the, the really difficult parts of what you were facing and the ways you coped with it. Yeah, I mean, humor is a medicine coping mechanism. It's also a creative outlet. So as a creative professional, that it was a pretty easy leap to go there and um, process that way. So on the, on the hinges of crying about like, oh, I guess I have to have chemo after all, and that's going to add another, you know, six months to this whole process. And, um, and then just going to a dark place, like, great, I'll lose my hair, I'll look like Sinead O'Connor, or, you know, what, or G.I. Jane. <laughs> I mean, you, I just, you just go, I mean, I just went there. And uh, my family's pretty much that way. I'm surrounded with people that can find humor in some of the darkest places. And so, yeah, it's like medicine. It's, it's comfort. And it, it goes hand in hand with some really painful, scary moments. Let's, let's let people hear a little bit of the book. Speaking of painful, scary moments, uh, mm. maybe you can share the part of the book that that has to do with hearing your diagnosis. Before you read it, I just want to say that it is such a common experience to what what you're talking about here happens so often and I don't understand it because medical professionals know that there's another way to do this. I mean, there's been tons of research. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I still hear this same story all the time. So I wanted to say that before you read. Okay, yeah. There was a quick knock on the door and turning of the handle. Dr. Perry entered the room with my chart, which seemed heavy in her hands. She offered a feeble hello and warm smile. I countered with a bright, if wobbly hello, dragging out the O and punctuating it with a question mark. Her manner was different than in our previous two appointments, quieter and more doctorly. She placed my chart on the counter, turned her back to me, and opened it. After looking at the contents one last time, either to remind herself of the pathologist's findings or to choose her words, she turned back around. You have invasive breast cancer, she said. Oh, God. Given your family history, the benign abnormality you had in 2003, and the fact that you're only 39 and we'd like you to see 50, she continued, I recommend a bilateral mastectomy. She had me at cancer. It roared through my head, forcing the rest of her words, the ones about living to see 50 and cutting off my breast, to scatter and embed like shrapnel, malignant shrapnel, small and sharp. 
My stomach, the hinges of my jaw, and the backs of my eyes began to quiver with shock. The stone in my throat throbbed, making it nearly impossible to swallow. I wasn't in the non-cancerous 50%. Everything wasn't okay. What stands out to me is this, the, that if a doctor was ever going to take time with a patient, like slow down and take time, it would be that kind of moment. And mm. yet it so frequently doesn't happen. Um, there's kind of a, and we're going to do this, and we're going to, I don't, uh, I, I read um, When Breath Becomes Air, um, mm-hmm. and that was written by a neurologist who had brain cancer, and he mm-hmm. had this same shocky, traumatic experience when he was diagnosed, even though he was so educated in that that area right i think it mm-hmm. just goes along with it and mm-hmm. um even saying something like um are you okay to go forward you know or <laughs> some mm-hmm. way of yeah. checking in on what's actually going on just seems like it would make such a difference mm-hmm. yeah it's such a uh, it's like this list like they should hand you a notebook and a and a, a pen when you come in for the appointment, you won't, you won't know yet why you're getting that notebook and pen, but then you could just like jot all it down because after what I just read, the chapter carries on with this list of other things about you're probably going to need chemo and then there'll be a uh, cosmetic surgery options. And then there'll be, um, you know, tamoxifen for five years. And, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm still stuck over here on the cancer part. I'm 39. Can we <laughs> like, and I, I, I liked uh, my, my doctor and we, we had some good times and she, she softened up a little bit. Not that she was harsh delivering that, but she softened up when um, she talked about um, fertility issues. And uh, you know, there's a moment where she taps my knees and, because she sees I'm I'm about to my eyes are just filled with tears. So um she caught know, up it, it's she caught she caught up but then she also had a you know like doctors she had another appointment like waiting for her. Mm-hmm. And so she leaves and then somebody else comes in with this, you know, bag <laughs> this like a tote bag. It was it was like purple with pink lettering I think or pink ribbons or something. And I was like, oh, is this like your consolation prize if you get this tote bag? What am I going to do with this tote bag? Am I going to go like, to the grocery store? Is this for my saltine crackers and ginger ale for when I have chemo? Like, what's this? But, <laughs> well, anyway, and it can I, be a little like that, you know, the, the rah-rah um, uh, cancer walks and... Uh, it, yeah. it can feel a little like that. I understand why we have those things, mm-hmm. um, sure. but but also um, sometimes it's missing the heart. Mm-hmm. It's like this cadence. It's like the cadence is off. I I don't know what the solution would be. I maybe I think in that instance, I would you know the doctor's like you know I have to. I have another patient to visit that I'm going to have like a care representative come in and um, talk with you 
about the other options and timing. That was the other thing I think that just in this moment, I'm thinking about this, that I had to call, I called her later to say, okay, I'm slowly absorbing all this information I got from you two days ago. What's the timing on this? Like, when do I need to have them step in? When do I do that? Because hmm. I left there with the tote bag, you know, crying in the hallway, like, oh crap, I have like all this stuff I have to do and I have to do it right now. Like, right. Slow, slow down. Give me like a, a window. I wish I would have left there with a window. I think that's one thing I would, I would give as feedback. One, one thing that stood out too, is that you, you say that before this, you could be somewhat indecisive. <laughs> and, and yet, when it came to this, you had to make a lot of decisions quickly. Mm -hmm. And somehow you found a way to do that. That really stood out that uh, mm -hmm. because I think many, many people struggle mightily with that, the demand for decisions that um, that feel sort of right in the wrong. <laughs> There's no mm -hmm. good, good choices, but but sort of feel right to you. But getting to those places fast is really hard. Yeah, it's really hard, which is why for me, I needed the, the window. So absorbing, um, absorbing the information, going back, having more questions. And then my personal process is coming from a, you know, pretty, I can be pretty practical. I think my pretty practical people in our family, it's like, this is just what you do. And um, my dad's a retired physician, which plays into that as well. Um, so I could have done nothing, but I think it, that wasn't going to be an option for me. I was going to kind of do the Western medicine approach. And I, my process included doing some research, of course, um, and then basically pulling all of my my close people and saying, what would you do? Mm. And, um, you know, no one, no judgment on either end. Um, but if I had to wager going back to that time, I probably knew somewhere in my brain, but I needed to vet it out uh, that I was going to go ahead and get that mastectomy. I didn't place a lot of value in my breasts. I didn't, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't the end of the world, all things considered. <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> you know, if well, this is going to save my life, then I, I just, I don't care. I didn't care about them enough. So kind of somewhere in my, my brain, I was like, I'm, pr I'm probably going to do everything that is recommended by uh, a physician and or researcher that I respect. Um, but, but my friends and family's um, opinions, they definitely had weight. And I considered what everybody said. I feel as if you got to the bottom line for you uh, when you were talking about uh, the, the sense, you kind of projected yourself into a future time in which you had or hadn't done everything you could. Mm -hmm. And some people can live with doing the less and project themselves in, into a future where they say, well, I took a chance and, you know, but I had the feeling you would have deeply regretted that. 
now, of course, it's much later and, and you haven't had a recurrence and, you know, you're healthy. And But I had the feeling that was very bottom line. You didn't want to regret the thing you didn't do. Would that mm-hmm. be fair to say? It's very, very fair to say, very spot on. Um, I can't, I did not want to have any what if, I wanted to eliminate any what if because that's energy that I would carry around. It would be distracting for me. I would always worry about it. And and I never thought that, and still don't think that recurrence isn't a possibility. It's just too, unfortunately, it happens too often, even years out. So that's just the reality. But I needed to know um, so that I could operate on a daily basis with mitigated fear, amount of fear, that I had done everything I could. So just, just what you said, I, I needed to be as thorough as my body would allow and my spirit would allow. And so that's kind of where I ended up with my decision. I think that's not just about mitigating fear, isn't it? Probably also about being at peace with yourself and your decision. Yeah. Yeah, I think they, <laughs> I yeah, really I, got that strong impression that you felt at peace with every decision that you made, even though they were all hard. Yeah, it, they were I right. For you. Yeah, they were exactly right for me. And even um, since then, you know, there's been various studies that have been done since uh, when I was making those decisions that have like people are, you know, getting mastectomies when they don't need to or, um, and anyway, regardless, I still am pretty happy with all the t- all the decisions that I made. I think I would make them again, given, you know, save for any advancements that have happened since then. Well, given the choices that I had available. I mean, I, I this comes up in therapy all the time. You, decisions you regret when circumstances changed after that, that doesn't make sense. because we we don't know what's going to change um yeah so uh being at peace with the circumstance you were in and the decisions you made in that context that's sort of the Mm -hmm. best we can do isn't it it is well said yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know i'm i'm um this is in parentheses but my son-in-law is a metastatic breast cancer researcher just by luck of the draw or something (laughs) i don't know um and and so i hear a lot about he's very good explaining research Mm -hmm. and he loves to talk about it so i hear a lot about cutting edge uh things and the -hmm. circumstance does change over time but it doesn't change what it was then it it's just different now different choices Mm -hmm. different um for instance when i first encountered the the breast cancer world, um, there was very little. I mean, it was it was um, there was much less information than when you were you were diagnosed, mm-hmm. uh, and much fewer options. So you make your decisions within that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you do. Hard either way. <laughs> <laughs> Hard either you're way. Being, but... You're being handed this thing, and you just have to figure it out. When we get back, I want to talk about whether that changed your relationship to decisions at all. Uh, because you had to make the hardest decisions of your life quickly, and you did it. And I wonder if that factors into your view of yourself as a decision maker 
Um, hmm. I, I'd be really curious about that because I um, we don't automatically, this is another message of your book, we don't automatically change because we have a terrible experience. But uh, sure. sometimes because of our own effort or what we put into it, we do. So I, I'm just curious whether that since it was so out of sync with how you viewed yourself before, whether that changed you. So let's come back to that. Okay. Listeners, you'll find links to my website, social media, the Good Grief page at Voice America. You can also find a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, and a link to Better Help. I just began sponsoring the organization. I really like them. I've, I've vetted them pretty deeply, and they they offer a matching service uh, and subscription service for online therapy, which is what everyone's doing right now. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can go to betterhelp.com slash good grief. And to find Dina Taylor, you can go to Dina, D-E-N-A, Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Dina Taylor about her memoir, I Don't Want to Be Pink about her breast cancer diagnosis and um, how she responded to it. And uh, before the break, Dina, I was, uh, I was curious about, you know, you had this experience where you saw yourself as sort of a, a, a person who has difficulty making decisions. And then you made a bunch of the biggest decisions of your life quickly and found a sense of peace with your decisions. Uh, and it went on for a long time. We can talk more about those details. And I just wondered if that changed 
uh, your perception of yourself and uh, maybe changed how you make decisions now? It's such a good question. I, I think it reinforced or gave me confidence that I can make a decision. <laughs> so <laughs> even, you know, light things and, and uh, like serious things as well as, you know, what restaurant I'm going to, you know, I'm going to meet my friends at after the pandemic, of course. Um, I think, I think the challenge at that time, and maybe it would be again, if something serious was posed is, finding the time to make an informed decision, um, not getting distracted by all the other things going on. Like, okay, everything has to freeze over here because I have to stop and do my research. So what things get put aside? What things can, does somebody help me with? What things, um, what things can hold? And then this whole prioritization process. I think, I think that is probably just, in my makeup that's kind of how I operate like with work I have priority lists and they're living breathing things and I switch them around as needed um but for for the big thing for cancer treatment I did have to uh enlist another copywriter to take on work for me to like hand my projects over to and um put some life things on hold and have family come and, and help me out and figure all that out. Um, so I think it's the weight of what needs to be decided upon, but back to it, I think it reinforced that I know I can do it. I think we all are stronger than we think we are um, until press. And so I guess it reinforced that idea, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I don't know that it changed, and let's see, do I make decisions quicker? Sometimes, sometimes I'll catch myself and say, oh my God, you know, deciding on this thing is not that big of a deal. I've been in a worse situation. I have done that. That's a little bit what I was, <laughs> what I was referring to. I know for me, uh, of course, I haven't had cancer. I just lived next to it for a decade. Um, and what, what changed for me is I didn't get caught up in my anxiety anymore. And I still don't. Uh, I mean, I, I might experience it for a minute and then I go, oh, come on, you know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. it's it's not that big. It's 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 doable kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I know for me that that time of living in these big, huge questions made other things a little smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I I think a matter of perspective and reminding yourself. So on one hand, if I were, if something big were to come up, like buying a home, um, I think I still would be like, ah, that's a lot of money. Or like, how am I, how's this going to work every month? What do I need to do? That's a lot of paperwork to find, etc. cetera. Um, I think it's, it could be a good sign that there's still some anxiety around that stuff because I'm not being triggered or remembering that other time mm, but then yeah. you know what i mean so yeah, but, yeah, then, yeah. but then again to your point um i do have those moments of this is not this is not life or death come on um just do it 
and be efficient or some, <laughs> something like that. But it's not, it's not all the time. It kind of depends. Mm-hmm. I think we share and this, this uh, maybe intersects a little bit here. Um, you know, I'm always really careful on this show. Uh, never, well, just because of my viewpoint that these calamities in our lives are actually not gifts. Um, you know, they're calamities. Uh, but then I'm also really so, um, it's so profound to me what we make out of it. Mm-hmm. That um, I think that's maybe a missing step when people say their cancer was a gift or whatever calamity was a gift. Uh, that that it kind of takes them out of the equation that they did things, that they learned things, right? They chose mm-hmm. to learn things. Um, mm-hmm. So that's part of where I'm coming from is um, I, I can tell in the book that there are some things that got reinforced for you. Like you already have had loving people in your life, but boy, you really saw how very loving they were and, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and I guess I would say I get the impression uh, maybe you didn't, uh, you felt pretty good to start with. You didn't have some big radical change process to put yourself through more a dealing with it type of thing for you. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I I think if we're talking about attributions around, you know, for me, uh, I could say, you know, I, I could have looked at it a couple ways. Like, you know, cancer, thank goodness for cancer, because it really showed me who my friends were or, um, or the depth of their love. But that didn't feel right to me. I, I feel like those and I put this in the book with like, you know, those friends would still would have stepped up for me no matter what. Right. Um, what, you know, I think I say in the book, if my house burned down, they still would, they would have showed up then. It's just who they are. So it was very important to me to recognize them and not, not thank cancer or, and, and I get the twist, like as a writer, I get the, the twist and the shock of of that um you know thank goodness for cancer now i you know you know i found this my my true calling for example and i think that's that's a wonderful story i just want to rearrange those words i think it's okay to pat yourself on the back and recognize your own strength and share that and to be Uh, call out your gratitude on the people and whoever resources in your life that stepped up to help you. They're the ones that did it. You know, they did it on their own. Like you had just said, they chose to help. They chose to come over and clean my cat box when I couldn't. And they chose to take me to my doctor appointment. Um, They chose to travel with me after. Mm. So they deserve the gratitude for, for me. And that I couldn't, I couldn't really, have it any other way. Yeah, I, I so resonate with that. Um, I, also, there's just, you know, since my big change experience had to do with losing this person I adored, you know, mm. that I deeply loved, it just would seem crazy to me to, to say thank goodness for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, but I do, yeah. I do value very much what came out of it for me, which obviously is a big part of my life. 
this yeah. is what I do every week. So I'm always reinforcing that message on this show just because I feel it so deeply. Some people may feel the other way, but it doesn't resonate for me too much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay to have, to have what, whatever resonates with an individual who's going through something is, is what's right for them. And you can not be thankful for cancer and then be thankful that you found, you know, something beautiful that, you know, a different path in its wake. But, you know, maybe you would have found that path eventually anyway. We don't know. We'd We'd never know, know. would we? (laughs) No, we won't won't know. And so I think it's it's okay, like, to have both of those feelings. Like, absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. so on a on a little more i don't know i almost want to say entertaining which is very weird <laughs> note um i i was so touched uh with humor i i laughed about your letter to chemo um, oh. and i almost felt like oh my gosh you had to break up with chemo to to move forward and maybe date other people <laughs> Is how I was thinking about yeah. it because, of course, you were single when all this happened. Would you share yeah. that uh, letter slash note that you wrote to Chemo when it was when it was um, coming to the end? Yes, I would love to. Dear Chemo, we're through. Our relationship has run its course. Some breakups come as a surprise. One lover secretly rehearsing, it's not you, it's me, while the other naively falls into what will be the last embrace, the last white lie about looking good in spandex. But you and I both knew this wouldn't last. When we met, I was young and scared, and your penchant for killing turned me on. The skill with which you stalk and destroy cellular phones was exhilarating. You were like my personal dirty Harry, a hired gun in a plastic tube. Much as I love your neck for annihilation, though, it's not enough to sustain a long-term relationship. I'm looking for someone to inspire me, desire me, light the fire in me. You make me want to puke. I may feel vulnerable without you, but any more of you will surely result in my demise. Don't be sad. When one port closes, another one, unfortunately, opens. There's someone else for you, and a million other places I'd rather be. No longer yours, Dina. I, I love the way that sort of ritualizes the end of, of that part of dealing with cancer, which of course, the way it works pretty much is um, take you to the edge of killing you. And then, you know, hopefully those cells you don't want anymore have died, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's always a... Um, a fraught relationship, I guess I'd say. It, but, it is. It's like, which, which, which evil would you, you know, lesser of the two evils, and what can your, you know, per your doctors, uh, what can your body, body withstand? And what do you think your body can withstand? And that also sends us to, uh, I, I feel you capture... Uh, having heard many single women talk about dating after going through breast cancer in particular, mm-hmm. um, 
it's it's a it's a quite a journey there um and i think you captured that so well i wonder if you could talk about you know you made some decisions that to me probably related to it like it seemed easy for you to make the decision to do reconstruction for instance mm -hmm. um being being a younger person and kind of wanting as close as you could get to um, your body back. I, mm -hmm. I don't want to speak to you, but that's the impression I got. But how much did the idea of subsequently wanting to date and, and be desired and be found beautiful by someone, how did that factor into that process of treatment for you? Well, I don't think that the, that being dateable, like, you know, whatever my personal um, idea of that played into the decisions in, on a conscious level, because my first priority was just to live. So mm -hmm. get this out of me. Uh, let's live or feel like I'm doing every like we talked about earlier, everything I possibly can to have a, a good prognosis. Um, and then once those decisions were made, it kind of seeped back in. I was turning 40. Um, and then I, after that, I found out I had, I was going to have chemo or I chose to have chemo, I suppose. And then I had lots of time <laughs> to think about, uh, okay, my hair is falling out and what is this going to look like for, uh, ever getting back in the dating pool like it, it, there was definitely some depressive depressing moments as far as that long journey because it's just you know it's months and then your hair's got to grow out and there's all this stuff so it seems so 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 far away mm -hmm. um but because I had plenty of downtime I did think about am I going to be dateable again I don't know what my body's going to look like when this exchange surgery is done also I had to, I had to wait postpone my exchange surgery referring to the implant um until after chemo so it just kind of got dragged out um and then i didn't know what that was going to look like moving forward so there was anxiety and some a lot of insecurities around that you had to kind of stay in that limbo place for much longer because of the timing of everything it sounds mm -hmm. like and Yes, and as we know, limbo means a lot of self-talk and, <laughs> yes. and, and, and not in the best way. Not the, no, not those the uncertain kind, places <laughs> are the places yeah. that, that the, I, I, sometimes I think of anxiety as the, this kind of fierce monster, you know, wait, just waiting to pounce in, a, in an idle moment. <laughs> so I can imagine yeah. that that period was, um, and then also feeling Chemo makes you feel so bad physically that yeah. um, that's also a, you know, an invitation for um, kind of wondering about the future, um, dipping into uncertainty for sure. Yeah. It's Definitely time for a, a dark place. Yeah. Uh, it, and, and it's time for our second break. And when we come back, that's actually, um, something I'd like to talk about before, before I let you go, which is 
obviously that's a dark process you went through. You've written this book about it, very captured it in such um, vivid detail. And then you've lived some time since. And I'd really like to talk about, you know, since you've been here before, I'd like to talk about how your perspective on that time in your life has changed because I think um, maybe I'm projecting, you know, my, my um, experience of that time with my wife keeps changing year after year after year. Mm -hmm. It's, it's constantly evolving. So I'm very curious, um, you know, what, what it's like for you now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com. That's my website. You can go to the Good Grief host page. To find Dina Taylor, go to dinataylor.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Dina Teller about her book, I Don't Want to Be Pink. And um, Dina... I, I'm really curious. So you talked in the book about being on a trip. Let's talk about travel in this segment for sure. And um, reading Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, yes. And it kind of trying to inspire yourself about, you know, this journey thing. Uh, and of course, that's got a very, very neat little tidy bow at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not how life is. It isn't that way for Elizabeth Gilbert. <laughs> even you know yeah I know. she's had many experiences since then and um you know many evolutions but when mm -hmm. you when you look back quite a few years now uh about seven or eight ish mm -hmm. um has your has your experience of that time in your life shifted or uh is it kind of 
you know, steadily what it was and kind of in the box. How do you look at it now compared with how it was, you know, um, nearer to when you went through it? I think the distance, the distance uh, of time definitely made it easier to reflect, but this time last year, I was, you know, everything was final. I was getting ready to publish it. So point being, it wasn't that long ago where I was finishing up edits and visiting um, certain chapters and, and I got to tell you, editing certain chapters, especially chapter one, um, the tears are right there. They they pop right up. And mm-hmm. uh, I was it, hugely relieved to to be finished and put this baby out there for, you know, all, all of the obvious reasons. But even in one of the readings that I did after I published it, I was reading about, um, oh, a section of, about a friend and it was early on early after the diagnosis and that friend was in the audience and I unfortunately I mistakenly locked eyes with her and lost it in the reading for about 10 seconds and uh, you know when you're, you're about to cry and your voice gets your throat gets tight and your voice gets shaky and so that happened I recovered and uh, was able to carry on but it's like some of those moments are still really raw when I go into them. I have since, but I mean, in large part on a daily basis, it seemed pretty long ago. Um, I've had some medical, other medical things like um, an appendectomy and a hip replacement since then. So I feel okay going into hospitals. That doesn't seem to trigger, although... I part of me does say, "Oh, been here before." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I know these. I know these halls. I know some how some of this, these procedures go down. Um, but I'm also just grateful for healthcare, so I'm able to not go deep into or have those triggers affect me in those particular situations. Um, it's kind of a practical practical approach. It's like, oh, it's just my hip. I'm just getting my hip replaced. Um, it's interesting, though, because intersex was something I really believe about grief. And of course, a cancer diagnosis is a loss mm. uh, of a sense of health and sometimes body parts. And, you know, yeah. um, so it's definitely a loss or several losses. And I don't think I think that can be touched. Um, mostly I'm grateful about having had my wife in my life, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's the biggest part of my experience now. But there are moments when something um, pushes me back into a certain moment and I will feel just as sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it doesn't happen as much and it's and, um, and it doesn't last as long, I guess we could yeah. say. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I would think agree that's with sort that. of sort of normal, you know. <laughs> it's not like it's ever not a loss that we experienced. Uh, no, I think we adjust. I think we acclimate and we adjust. It comes part of our fabric. Um, and if the circumstances are just right, then it can really trigger a a, a deep moment, a somewhat reliving or but. I think you said that really um, 
well in a way that resonates with me is that it doesn't last as long or as frequent. And it, and it does. I mean, that's, I guess, uh, I'll bring in Stephen Levine. He would call that an open heart. You know, mm -hmm. that when our hearts break, they break open and mm -hmm. there's feeling there, you know, that's mm -hmm. sort of normal actually. <laughs> mm -hmm. But to take a little turn here, though, I really want to talk about one of your primary ways I think of navigating that healing period after uh, cancer treatment, which was mega travel. Yeah, lots of um, <laughs> would you Would you read the little part about going to to France as a as a kind of stepping off point for travel? Of course, and don't judge my pronunciation. <laughs> I will not. <laughs> okay. Arc de Triomphe and Musée d'Orsay, Jardin des Tuileries and Champs-Élysées, La Seine, Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, and Sacre Coeur. Everything in Paris was so old and so new and so not cancer. It was like the city of light existed to make up for malignant disease. For every nasty side effect I had endured, every hot flash, there was a bewitching iconic attraction or sensory experience to be had. Whether I was contemplating the winged victory of Samos Trust at the Louvre or the chocolate ganache bowl of my morning's croissant, a second cup of cafe creme or fine leather boots at the boutique de chaussures, I certainly wasn't worrying about recurrence or the leveled nipples under my bra. I was out of my head in Paris with three of my favorite people. Paris should be a part of every treatment plan, I told Linda. Paris, Beaujolais, and warm chocolate croissant. That so reminded me of a movie I saw way, way back. Actually, after I read it, I, um, I went and looked up the movie again. because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, It was called The Doctor. And it was about a doctor who's a surgeon and he's very cold and hard and he's telling his students never get emotionally attached. And, and then mm. he gets diagnosed with cancer. And um, I think it's based on a, an actual guy. Anyway, there's one point where he's making friends with this young woman who also is in treatment. They're sitting and visiting, you know, chairs next to each other. And he says, how do you get through it? And she says, I cry, I rest, and I eat chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> well, chocolate. I mean, chocolate. It's a, it's a it's, theme. <laughs> it's, it's got antioxidants. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's supposed to be a love replacement, so I've been told. <laughs> yes. I think I could do that. <laughs> I was enumerating all the places you went. You know, you went to Belize, you went to the Northwest, you went to Alaska, you went to Paris, you went to Africa, all mm -hmm. in, what, a, a year period of time? No, the Africa thing was 2008, so that was about mm, two years after treatment, roughly. Mm -hmm. um, now, one of the occasions was a my brother's wedding. Um, the trip to the Northwest was back home. Um, and then, yeah, then there were a couple other, like, you know, uh, North America trips versus overseas 
or, you know, long flights. But Africa was, uh, I really wanted to stretch and get outside my comfort zone and really get, kind of get perspective. And it, it was just like, why not? Why, mm. why not just push yourself and see what it's like out there? I think, I think coming out of um, treatment and your, your, there's so much comfort in being watched over and having those, for me anyway, um, during treatment that you'd have the regular checkups with your doctor and someone was always kind of looking out for you. There's this little bit of anxiety after you leave treatment because no one is like, no, no one's looking out after me week Absolutely. after week. What if something, what if something's growing? And then, you know, a year of kind of adjusting to those feelings and doing four months checkups, like this confidence slowly builds and kind of coincided with this uh, client friend had gone to Africa in the same place and and I saw this picture on her computer and I asked her about it and she's like yeah it's a volunteer vacation and you help tutoring in the classroom at a school and I'm like done she's already researched it now I can just look into that and uh, took a leap and it felt like a exerting some confidence I was Mm -hmm. I'm like I feel like I I did this other thing I why not do why not expand on it what what would be next um, so all those little trips kind of led up, maybe led up to that. Look at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of, of a woman named Terry Wingham. I, I looked her interview with me up. It was a month after you. She started an organization called A Fresh Chapter. And mm-hmm. um, she had breast cancer young as well and kind of found her, found her energy in a similar trip to yours. So she, uh, she really came to mind and she started an organization where groups of people who've uh, either had cancer or been caregivers go somewhere in the world. Africa is one of the places they go and they volunteer and they do, um, you know, sightseeing mm-hmm. and hang out. Um, not so much to talk about cancer, but to have that off the table uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way. And just to experience something very fresh, she really came to mind when I was reading mm-hmm. that part of the book about that trip you took. It seemed to have. Yeah, a... I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have to listen to that and look into that. Um, it is interesting because when you look back at these experiences, cancer, you know, experience that I had, I've all the things that you can put in front of it like you keep pushing it to the back of the room like with by replacing the current with these current new experiences and so it gets farther and farther away so there's your time distance but there's also these experiences that are um replaced not replacing it but being pushed i'm trying to figure out how to say it they're um they're in the front of your memory and it pushes that into the back if that makes sense it does so. make sense. And also the way I felt reading the book in that aspect is that um, you wanted to be the whole person that you are and that those experiences, um, they kind of dilute the ways that during treatment, it's all about, it can be all about cancer, right? Cancer keeps, <laughs> you know, reminding you that that's what you're dealing with. But the, the more different experiences you have, um, the less prominent that is, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the more there are other things in there too. And that seemed so important to you to be all of who you are. And um, I hope people will read this book because I think you really captured that experience that I've, that I've really heard about so often of not wanting to be diminished to just this one aspect mm-hmm. and wanting to be seen as, you know, all that, all that a person is. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that happen to us in life and it's, it's up to us on how we want to define ourselves. So maybe it becomes a part of the fabric, but maybe it's a small part. Or, um, it, and you can have a small part that had a, a you know, profound moment, but it doesn't Absolutely. have to be the dominating moment, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. And I hope people will read the book to, to get a fuller picture of that, because I think you capture it so well. Thank you so Thanks much. for being here today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So good to hear your voice again. <laughs> Vice versa. Um, please go to dinataylor.com to find out about the book. And, and I hope I hope it um, gets read. It's just really powerful. Next week, I'll have Gregor Collins to talk about his book, The Accidental Caregiver. Taking a job he didn't want to make ends meet led to a profound and life-changing experience when the person who hired him to take care of her was Holocaust refugee Maria Altman, the woman at the heart of the movie Woman in Gold. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.